0: It truly is a joy to be able to come before you and to proclaim the excellencies of of Christ through his word. And I would like to start with some brief observations from the first chapter of the Bible. Just look at what the word of God says in Genesis 1. It won't be the text that we will be studying this morning, but it will give introduction to it. In Genesis 1, 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. We see in all the creation account how this this phrase keeps standing out. In verse 10, when the earth and the seas were created, and God saw that it was good. In verse 12, when the vegetation was created, and God saw that it was good. In verse 18, when the great lights in the heavens were created, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, when the sea creatures and the birds were created, and God saw that it was good. And verse 25, when the beasts of the earth were created, again, and God saw that it was good. And the chapter ends with this great statement. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here we have the first pages of our holy scriptures that's introducing, Moses writing this, introducing the people of Israel to an exceptionally important attribute of God. Verse 1 clearly and boldly presents God as creator, and it highlights his his sovereignty over all His creation. He He is in total control over all of it, And has all right to be because he created it all. But don't miss this. Not only is he sovereign, but all that he created was good. He is the good sovereign one who made all things good. But as you know, chapter 3 introduces us to, to the bad. When the serpent deceived the woman and she and the Man ate of the forbidden fruit, which then plunged all of humanity into sin and into death. And this forbidden fruit came from a tree known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a, a massive and radical collapse of, of man's spiritual condition, causing an, an inescapable enslavement to sin, and and even his understanding of of good was radically distorted. This is is soberly expressed by the prophet Isaiah in his book, in chapter 5, verse 20, which says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. But praise be to God, he never changed. God remained, remains, and will always maintain his goodness, and he will always extend his goodness to his children. So this morning, what one want to glory in is this goodness of our Lord, the goodness of our Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to read all the chapter and expound on all the verses of this chapter. People are starting to get up and starting to leave. now. <laughs> it is the longest chapter of the Bible. It's a rich, rich chapter. But my prayer is that we might truly appreciate the loving goodness of our great God as we study just the ninth stanza, and not even that, just half of the ninth stanza of this unique psalm. So our reading is from verses 65 to 72. Verses 65 to 72. <clears throat> And this is what the word of the Lord says. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. As you are aware, this great chapter is written by a, a psalmist who who directs our thoughts to, to meditate on the on the grandeur and and the centrality of the word of God. We don't know much about him other than what he expresses about himself in this great psalm. He is a servant of the Lord whose passion for the word of God is to know the God of the word. He expresses this psalm in a magnificent literary masterpiece with 22 stanzas each stanza having eight verses representing in order a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's fascinating. these eight verses in each stanza in each verse begins with, with the stanza's corresponding Hebrew letter. And the author also employs various synonyms that refer to the Word of God, which highlights different aspects, different characteristics of God's revelation to us. Well, I have titled the stanza that we will be looking at this morning, The Word, the Expression of the Goodness of the Lord. The Word, the Expression of the Goodness of the Lord. The Hebrew letter that represents this stanza is the Hebrew letter tet. That has the T sound like in Thomas, and now what the psalmist does, and this is what fascinated me as I studied this, this uh, chapter. It, by the way, I was able to teach all of the chapter to our church um, starting in the year of COVID. And it took me actually like three years to do it. Um, it, takes, it took me two Sundays for each, for each stanza. Rich, rich study. And what we see with many of the stanzas is he, the, the, the psalmist capitalizes on the letter, and in this case on the letter tet, by presenting to us a very key word in the Hebrew language. The, the word is tov, tov, which means good, or goodness, or, or well. Now many might know the common Hebrew greeting Boker tov, which means good morning or good day. And he uses this key word, tov, in in these eight verses five times, which gives us uh, this focus to the truth of God's goodness. In the Hebrew text, the following verses literally begin like this. Verse 65, good you have dealt. Verse 66, good discernment. And verse 68, good are you. In verse 71, good it is for me. And, and verse 72 also starts with that, but because of the construction in Hebrew, it is used in a comparative way. It says, good it is for me, or better it is for me. Now, another key feature we find in many of the stanzas is the psalmist's continual expression of, of distressing circumstances that he is experiencing. Well, we find this also in, in this stanza, but with, with all the stanzas before this one, he's expressed his afflictions caused by, by external forces, if you will, specifically his enemies. For instance, look at verse 51. It says, The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Making reference to his, to his enemies. In verse 61, the cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. But now in this stanza, he introduces another type of affliction. He introduces an internal, an internal, internal condition that was weighing, weighing heavy on him. He speaks of the affliction caused by his personal sin. So with this in mind, what we we find in this stanza are two dire situations wherein the goodness of God is manifested. Two dire situations where the goodness of God is manifested so that we, as children of God, may live thankful lives. First, what we see is the goodness of God manifested in relation to personal sin. The goodness of God manifested in relation to personal sin, verses 65 through 68. And secondly, what one can see is the goodness of God manifested in relation to personal attack, verses 69 through 72. And like I stated, uh, we will only be able to look at the first four verses and study the first of these dire situations. You'll just have to invite me again <laughs> to finish it out. <laughs> so the first is the goodness of God manifested in relation to personal sin. Verse 65 says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. As we've already mentioned, the word tov, that is, good, in this case, well, in the translation, introduces the, th- this, the theme of the stanza, the goodness of the Lord. And we must remember that, in essence, this whole psalm, the, 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 the 176 verses, is an intimate prayer directed to Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord of the covenant, the the, the Lord who has established promises for his people, a people to whom this psalmist belonged. So so here he addresses the Lord, and and he's calling on his holy name, that name that is so deeply tied to, to the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant, the name Yahweh. In the first four verses, it's verse 67 that sets the context in which the goodness of the Lord was manifested to this psalmist. Verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So when he says, I went astray, what he is expressing is is some kind of sin he was wrestling with. Now, we don't know all the details of this sinful conviction, but obviously it was weighing heavy on him. So it is this context, it is in this context, in this dire situation, that that we must consider the psalmist's various expressions that we find in the first four verses. So as he prays to Yahweh, he he is well aware that having failed his Lord, he is utterly undeserving. Of the Lord's goodness. So, having this context in mind, the Lord would have us consider this morning four provisions. Four provisions of His goodness as it relates to personal sin, four provisions of His goodness to spark in us a heart of glorious thanksgiving. And here's the first provision the goodness of the Lord provides. The goodness of the Lord provides a personal dealing with sin. It is is the goodness of the Lord that provides a personal dealing with sin. Verse 65, you, you, Lord, you have dealt well with your servant. Observe that phrase, with your servant. The the preposition with there expresses this, this intimate relationship between the psalmist and his Lord. And up to this point, he'd already referred himself as the servant of the Lord four times in verse 17, verse 23, verse 38, and and verse 49. And in Hebrew, as also we see in Greek, this is the same word that means slave. What this shows is the psalmist's keen awareness of, of his humble position before his Lord. He's not an equal partner with the Lord in his Christian walk. Yahweh is the Lord. The psalmist is merely a, a slave under a sovereign Lord. However, being, being a slave to the Lord is not an oppressive position, rather, it, it is a great privilege. It, it is a huge blessing. Actually, Being a slave of the Lord is the key to freedom. Being a slave to the Lord, a slave of the Lord, frees him from being a slave to sin, to become a slave to righteousness. This should remind us of Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 6 of Romans, specifically verses 16 to 18. I'll just read it to you. Paul writes, "Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness." But thanks be to God that through though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, You became slaves of righteousness. This this freedom defines the psalmist's new relation to his Lord. This new relationship to his Lord, a slave of righteousness under the good dominion of his sovereign Lord. And, And this relationship guarantees, listen to this, this relationship guarantees the Lord's good treatment. This, this, this relationship guarantees the Lord's good dealing, the Lord's good care of him. And it is the care of a God that would never abandon his promise, promises of his covenant to his people. And this is exactly what the psalmist expresses with a, such a grateful heart in this first verse. You have dealt well. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. The psalmist has no doubt that the Lord is good. He expresses it there in verse 68. You are good and you do good. But here he applies this truth in a very personal way. Here he is very grateful to to the personal dealing, this, this personal treatment of God's goodness after having failed him in his personal sin. In Sin, he knew his ways were not pleasing to the Lord. He, he knew that he really deserved the Lord's judgment. He, he really deserved the Lord's wrath, the, the Lord's abandonment. However, the Lord in his mercy, in his abundant grace, in his immeasurable goodness, he will never abandon his children. Never abandon his children. He, he forgives his children. He restores his children. The psalmist acknowledges that, the, that this goodness is, is manifested in a very specific treatment, a very personal dealing to restore him from his sin. And, and and how was this treatment played out? Well, look at what the text says. Verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. The goodness of the Lord is according to the word of God. <clears throat> Here is this first term, the, the first term he uses in this stanza that refers to God's special revelation, to God's word. There's eight words throughout all of the chapter that he uses. And here's one, the word dabar in Hebrew, which is the more general term of all the synonyms. It speaks of the written revelation that the Lord gave to his people in general terms. And we see here that the psalmist is keenly aware that God's goodness to him was not a goodness according to human standards. God's goodness to him was a goodness according to his standard, according to God's standard. The world's goodness paints a very deceitful picture, does it not? It it focuses on the external to define goodness, and its results don't endure. The world's goodness is a picture of material prosperity. But it does not promise eternal reward but not so with God's goodness. God's goodness focuses on the inner man. It is a goodness that has eternal value. It is a a goodness that seeks the best for his children. It is a goodness that molds the character of the child of God. And it is a goodness that absolutely crushes man's pride to create in him a tender and humble heart so he may live a consecrated and holy life passionate life, a life that that constantly lifts up glorious expressions of praise to the Lord of the lords, to Yahweh, the only one who is truly good, good. This is the goodness of God. This is according to the word of God. And all this, God has revealed in his word, a word full of promises for his children. to accomplish these eternal results, many times, the goodness of the Lord doesn't look too good. (laughs) Doesn't look too good. Specifically, to correct a wayward child. Many times, the Lord uses uncomfortable measures. And even horrific measures. But all of it is a manifestation of God's goodness. One example of God's goodness revealed in his word is the well-known account of Jonah, isn't it? When he rebelled against the Lord. We know it well. God called Jonah to preach against Nineveh to warn them of pending destruction. But because of his hatred to or hatred for the Ninevites, Jonah fled from from the Lord's command by taking a ship that would take him far from his presence, as it says there in the text, in Jonah. But the Lord, full of goodness, remember that context, full of goodness, sent a great storm (laughs) to begin Jonah's restoration process. As you well know, the storm was a catalyst to to cause a series of events that eventually led to his rapid descent into the sea to what he desperately feared would be his imminent death. But because of the goodness of the Lord, Jonah experienced God's great mercy when the Lord saved him from a horrific drowning. And the mercy was, this this is God's mercy, was in the form of a big fish. <laughs> Some people think that was the affliction. No, that was his salvation. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. But interesting, in chapter 2 of Jonah, verses 1 and 2, we, we see Jonah's expression of thanksgiving. He says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called, called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. So he wakes up in the belly of the fish. He realized he's saved from, this, from drowning. And so he said, wow, I, I called when I, was, when I was thinking I was about to drown. I called, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. He, he, you heard my voice. So, so he, 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 this, this psalm that is in chapter 2 of Jonah is actually a thanksgiving psalm. But don't miss this. The same God that heard him, the same God that, that, that saved him is the same God that was directly involved with all the horrific circumstances from which he needed to be saved. Look at verse 3 of Jonah 2. If you're, if you're there, look, look what Jonah says. For you... Talking to Yahweh, for you had cast me into the deep. Oh, I thought it was the sailors. Well, that was God's means, but it was God. Into the heart of the seas, and the current, uh, in the great current engulfed me, all your breakers. Huh, it's interesting, huh? All your breakers and billows passed over me. God's goodness manifested in all the horrific details of the storm and eventually in the great fish was his personal dealing with Jonah's rebellion. This prophet recognized that this was God's rod and staff that comforted him. As we read in Psalm 23, 4, he knew that he did not re- deserve this redeeming goodness of his Lord well, brothers and sisters, is it not true that many times we experience very similar circumstances? The true child of God, when, when he sins, should feel the, the, the unbearable weight of sin's guilt. We, we should feel utterly undeserving of God's goodness. At times, God uses horrific means. Not because he is angry with us but because he wants to show his loving goodness in bringing us back, in restoring us with his rod and staff. All this is the goodness of the Lord that provides a personal dealing with our sin. So may we we join with the psalmist and express our great joy and and gratitude by saying you have dealt with Well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. The Lord's goodness not only provides a personal dealing with sin, secondly, the Lord's goodness provides wise instruction. Wise instruction. Verse 66. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. The first phrase literally translates, good taste and knowledge teach me. Again, the word tov, good, heads up this verse following the main theme of the stanza, the goodness of the Lord. And the psalmist in the original text uses the word that often is translated taste in other passages. And, and in this text, the psalmist uses this word to give a, a vivid uh, picture that describes the spiritual discernment or spiritual judgment. That we should have just, just, as our, just as our taste buds <laughs> are used to determine or, or discern a good or bad taste of food or drink, the Word of God is the standard to discern what is good and what is bad. And the New American Standard picked up on this and correctly translated teach me good discernment and knowledge. Look at what the psalmist is asking for, he's asking for good discernment. Good knowledge. In other words, he wants to be able to take the knowledge that the Lord provides and use it to judge, to discern correctly all his experiences in life. All that that he encounters in, in life. He wants to sharpen his discernment skills. He wants to be able to rightly discern between good and evil. To make wise decisions in a world full of foolishness. In a world full of deceit. And as we consider the context of personal sin, the psalmist humbly understands that he had used bad judgment that sadly led to his sin against the Lord. Even when, when he was in his sin, the pounding, the pounding weight of, of, of the powerful exhortations of God's word lay heavy on his heart. But but now that he had repented, his his eyes have been opened to, to see how true and how trustworthy are the commandments of his Lord. So what does he want? He wants more. He he wants more knowledge, he wants more exhortations, he wants more instructions, he wants more of these commands. These are, these are wise instructions that guide him through, the, through life to remain faithful in the path of righteousness. These are wise instructions that, that shed light on questionable situations to be able to make the right decision. And these are wise instructions that have passed the test of time and have passed the test of experience. And in this particular case, these instructions of the Lord were, were proven to be wise after he had experienced the horror of his sin. So for this reason, he adds this resolute statement to this humble petition, for I believe in your commandments. Another way to translate this would be, for in your commandments, I have trusted. I'm now trusting in your commandments. The commandment of the Lord never fail. They never fail, these commandments. They are divinely prescribed orders to bring eternal blessing. Unfortunately, many rebel against the commandments of the Lord and believe that doing so, they will live a better life. But this is an unfounded and false trust, because whatever pleasure that sin brings is fleeting and will only lead to one's certain ruin. But the child of God, after having sin, discovers that rebelling against the commandments of the Lord is truly the epitome of foolishness foolishness. The commandments of the Lord are always the safest way. Always. They are truly trustworthy. That's why the psalmist wants more. He wants more instructions, wants more knowledge to be able to avoid what he had foolishly done and in turn live a life of thankfulness for the goodness of his Lord. This is where the The flesh tries to win the battle. Our flesh says that God's commandments are too strict. Come on, there's no problem to enjoy some pleasures every now and then. What are the consequences? Is there really danger in this? And the flesh deceives us. And the more we allow the flesh to take over, the more our conscience is weakened. And the more our discernment skills become dull. So, my brothers, let not the flesh have dominion. Let not your conscience be weakened. When we were raising our children, we still are raising two daughters there at home, we would tell them that that they should long for a conscience that torments them when they sin. I want my children, I want to be tormented if I'm going to sin. And the only way to have such a conscience is to to long for the instructions for the commandments of the Lord, which then become a fortress against the sinful desires of the flesh. And this is a genuine, genuine mark of spiritual maturity. Many are comfortable with a light knowledge of the word of God and find themselves defenseless Against a constant barrage of, of attacking temptations. And, and this is what the author of the book of Hebrews spoke of in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 14. I'll just read it quickly. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food it is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained. Listen to this. Have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the goodness of the Lord provides wise instruction. Not only this, it also provides genuine change. Provides genuine change. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word years where we find the psalmist's brief confession of his sin, as we already mentioned, it is interesting the term he uses to describe this. The the word translated went astray actually carries with it a a softer tone regarding the severity of the sin. It it doesn't necessarily refer to an open and and outright rebellion against God's authority. It could refer to a sin committed out of ignorance or, or a sin committed in a time of weakness. Nevertheless, let Us not minimize sin. Sin is sin, even for the child of God. And in the eyes of God, it is a very serious violation against the Holy God. And it needs to be dealt with immediately. In addition to this, the interesting, the grammatical construction here helps us understand that his going astray lasted for some amount of time. A better translation would be I was continually straying. For a time the psalmist was in a in a state of waywardness. However, he he clearly expresses his genuine change by giving us a sort of a a before and after picture. You notice that? Verse 67, before I was afflicted, here's where we find what the Lord used to bring the psalmist back to the path of righteousness: this affliction. This affliction was the rod and staff. God's instrument to confront and correct this wayward child of God. We don't know what this affliction was in detail, but there was an affliction. And through this affliction, the Lord worked in the heart of the psalmist to crush his pride and humble him to the point of repentance. The psalmist was humbled so that he might be restored. So these are the steps that describe this restorative process. First, he was continually wayward second he was afflicted somehow and we would even add by the goodness of the Lord and third he was humbled to the point of repentance but we see a fourth step in this process the text says but now I keep your word here we see the result of this repentance he firmly states his commitment to obedience this is the goal of repentance is it not To obey the word of God. You know, I believe many times we confuse what true repentance is. We we base it on unbiblical standards. And we believe that when someone changes and fulfills those human standards, well, they're repentant. But true repentance does not occur until you know the biblical standard. And with all your heart, you commit to fulfill that standard. That's true biblical Repentance. And we must see that all this process, it's all because of the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. It is the Lord's goodness that provides genuine change. May our repentance truly be according to the Lord's standards and may we commit to them at all costs. Lastly, the Lord's goodness not only provides a personal dealing with sin, not only provides wise instruction, not only provides genuine change, but the goodness of the Lord provides a glorious affirmation. A glorious affirmation. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is the third time the word tov leads a verse. The, The psalmist, after contemplating all that he has experienced in this restoration process, he now lifts up a a doxological affirmation that exalts the unique goodness of the Lord. God does not only do good, and this he knows very well, but he is, you notice that, good. This is God's nature. All the goodness that the Lord does flows from a nature of goodness that characterizes him. It is inherent in the Lord. I don't know if you've thought of this great truth in this way. Nothing that God does would generate hope for his children if he were not good. Nothing that God does would generate hope for his children if he were not good. For example, if God were sovereign, and he is sovereign, but not good, huh, and control everything but not good, he would be the most atrocious and oppressive dictator with no other end for us than our total annihilation. <laughs> but because he is sovereign and he is good, the one that does good, we of all people have a great hope. That does not disappoint. A hope that assures us that all things work together for good. Wow. All things work together for good, as Romans 8.28 so firmly states. His goodness leads us to the ultimate good. As children of God, we have the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope. We can thus join the psalmist and affirm the unique goodness of the Lord. There is no one like him. What a glorious truth. So our longing to deepen our understanding of this unique goodness must be the petition that the psalmist makes in closing this verse. Teach me your statutes. Teach me those wonderful truths that are permanently recorded so that we may walk the path of righteousness. And this should be our utmost longing. So this morning we've celebrated God's goodness and how his goodness blesses us with four provisions regarding personal sin. His goodness provides a personal dealing with sin. His goodness provides wise instruction. His goodness provides genuine change. And his goodness provides a glorious affirmation. But we must understand something, that none of this goodness can be ours unless we know the Good Shepherd the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who provides a personal dealing with sin (laughs) by having died on the cross and has risen again, guaranteeing our eternal salvation. He is the one who provides us with wise instruction as we live our lives by following his commandments. And he's the one who provides genuine change as he providentially orchestrates all circumstances and he exhorts us with his word, to bring us back to the path of righteousness. And he's the one who is worthy of this glorious and unequivocal affirmation that he is good and he does good. There is no one like him. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table. Is it not? Because of his goodness of coming to earth living a life of righteousness, dying on a cross so cruel, shedding his blood, giving of his body, resurrecting on a third day that we might experience his goodness in our salvation. So let us bask in Christ's glorious goodness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. What a wonderful, wonderful truth, a hope-filled truth. Thank you, Father, that we are recipients of that goodness through the salvation of Jesus Christ, who forgave our sins and will never abandon us. May we be faithful to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.